0: If you haven't done so already, go ahead and grab your Bibles, and you can turn over or scroll over to John chapter 15. John 15 takes place toward the end of the fourth gospel's account. This section is what scholars often refer to as the farewell discourse. This is the chapters 13 through 17, the final five chapters that led up to Christ's burial, his his arrest, his crucifixion, and his burial On the cross for us. Uh, The narrative time really slows down, and we go from all these events and these signs and these sayings, and it's almost like we're a fly on the wall as Jesus is discussing most intimately with his final 12 disciples. Uh, In those chapters, he washes the disciples' feet, he serves them communion, he tells them to love one another, he promises the Holy Spirit, he he warns them about the opposition that they're going to face from the world, and he ultimately prays that they would be one even as he and the Father are one. All of this is ripe with implication for what it means to live out the Christian life as the new covenant community of God. And smack dab in the middle of it all is our passage today, John 15, 1 through 11. Having said that, this passage of scripture that we just had read a moment ago can be kind of troubling for a lot of us because of its emphasis on pruning, fire, branches being thrown away. I know I don't want to be one of those, uh, Romans 11, which is a passage that speaks also about branches and fruit and Gentiles being grafted into the family of God. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The kindness and the severity of God. What a striking and sobering phrase, and it's really a fitting summary for what we'll study today. If you're taking notes this morning, and I hope that you are, the title of the message I'd like to preach to you is True Vine, True Branches, True Fruit. True Vine, True Branches, True Fruit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you that today is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you that we get to study your word and we pray that as we study, we would make our home with you. We would abide in you. We would dwell in you. We would stay with you. We'd live with you. And that there's nothing on this earth that would be able to dislodge us from that home in you. We pray that we would do so for your glory, our joy, and the world's good. It's in Jesus' name, that we pray, amen and amen. Uh, this final I am statement in John's gospel is also uh, often seen as a foundational text for what we like to call spiritual formation. Uh, the word abide or meno in Greek is often translated as remain, and it's, it's, it's pretty emphatic in this text. If you didn't catch it a minute ago, it's actually repeated about 10 times, and it's this idea of abiding, of remaining, of staying, of dwelling, of making our home in God. The point is clear enough that Jesus is trying to make, stay, point, stay put, don't leave, make your home with me. Let me and all that I am serve as the source of your life, power, and productivity. Uh, Henry Nouwen in his book, Spiritual Formation, appropriately named, defines spiritual formation as the means of ongoing formation of the heart and community life expressed in service to the world. Spiritual formation means ongoing formation of the heart and community life expressed in service to the world. Uh, this is one writer's way of communicating what we have written right over here on the wall. We love God together. We love our church family together. We love our neighbor together. We're seeking to be formed after God's own heart. We operate in community life, and then we go on mission and service to the world, to our community, uh, up, in, and out, head, heart, These are just different ways of saying the same thing, that we believe that Christianity is not just project self or meditative mindfulness or granola outdoor feel-good vibes, uh, that Christianity is a whole-life orientation toward God, where we experience God together on Sunday morning. We go into our community groups, and we share the love of God with one another, and then we go out into our neighborhood, our city, and beyond. Another way to think about the spiritual journey, the journey of spiritual formation, are these five buckets or categories. The choices we make, the stories we believe, the habits we practice, the people we embrace, and the places we call home. The choices we make, that's the decisions that we make in life. I am uh, 27 years old, married, about to finish up graduate school, and I'm at that kind of stage of life, I know this happens for all of life, but especially right now, I'm feeling it more than ever, that you make your decisions and then your decisions make you. (laughs) And I'm feeling kind of that paralysis by analysis right now, if I can just be open with where this guy is. Uh, There's the stories we believe. These are the narratives, the cultural narratives, many that shape us from adolescence on. The habits we practice. This is what we call the spiritual disciplines of fasting, Bible reading, going to church. You're doing a spiritual discipline right now, so give some snaps for yourself. Well done. You're in church are practicing the practices of God, uh, the people we embrace, these are our relationships. And, and this last one, I really want to hone in on today, the places we call home. If you look at verses one through two, it says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear even more fruit. Uh, Beasley Murray, in his commentary on John, says that the description of Jesus as the true vine is primarily intended to contrast with the failure of the vine Israel to fulfill its calling to be the people of God. In fact, just outside the temple in Jesus' day, there stood this beautiful, ornate, engraved, golden vine. Uh, Josephus, the historian, claims that the gate opening had above it golden vines with grape clusters as tall as a man. Uh, pretty pretty significant in, in the life. In Herod's temple, in Jesus' day, in Jerusalem, There's this vine. What a, and Can you imagine if we just came into church this morning and there was a big vine out front? And week after week after week, just what that visual would do to your heart. The idea of Israel as God's one true vine found its root in the biblical tradition as well. But more often than not, it was Israel's failure to live out its covenant allegiance to Yahweh that caused God to express his disapproval over his people by calling them a faithless vineyard. The great prophet Isaiah recounts in Isaiah chapter 5, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out, A wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Fast forward to the New Testament and John the baptizer picks up these themes of branch and vineyard and pruning and fruit and fire. Matthew chapter 3 verses 7 through 10 say, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he, that is John, was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with Repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Ouch. (laughs) In the words of one commentator, for Jesus and his new covenant people, Jews and Gentiles alike, it is no longer a matter of possessing the vineyard. It is now a matter of knowing the true vine. But if there is a one singular true vine, I think that implies that there must be many plural false vines. For the religious elite of Jesus' day, they were looking to the Torah, the temple, and the land as their stubborn reliance for God's faithfulness in their lives. They believed that those outward signs of covenant loyalty, those national badges of righteousness, would secure their identity as the people of God. Today, our false vines look pretty different than theirs, but they really are not much different at all. They're God-given things, maybe even good things, but external measurables that are in no way sufficient for measuring the inward condition of our hearts. Today, our false vines can be things like social acceptability, career advancement, intellectual acumen, physical prowess. Myself, obviously. I'm a specimen, come on. Um, Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that vote of confidence. Uh, the enjoy- Lord Jesus have mercy. Uh, the enjoyment of nature, church attendance, spiritual giftedness, care for the poor, evangelistic activism, theological insight, knowledge of Scripture. But whatever it is that operates as the foundational source of our identity, value, and worth will be the very thing that will eat us alive if it does not first find its grounding in Jesus. Fleming Rutledge, who, if you haven't. Read your girl, Fleming Rutledge. She is fire and highly recommend to you her work. She says in one of her books, there's a fashion today for exhorting us to live into various things, live into our baptism, live into our calling, live into our mission. I think that's a very 21st century humanist do-it-yourself way of speaking. We don't live into the vine who is the life of the church. The vine lives into us. We live from the vine, from the word of God, from the body and blood of Christ, from the tireless work of the spirit that is new every morning. Over and against these competing vines of false self that are vying for our identity, the true vine gives life, and the true vine produces the branches in us that we need. Look at verses 3 through 6. It says, already y'all are clean because of the word that I have spoken to y'all. Abide in me, and I in y'all. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can y'all, unless y'all abide in me. I am the vine, y'all are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, y'all can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burn. That was the SSV, in fact, Val. It was. It was a Southern Standard Version. And uh, you boys from Tennessee, shout-out to all my Texas folks. Uh, I, I joke, but the, the emphasis on the plural nature in the original Greek is intense. It's designed to arrest and alarm. You see, so many times when we read Scripture all cozied up with our cup of coffee in the morning uh, on the couch, which I highly recommend, by the way, Bible before breakfast is the best way to go, Uh, What we actually miss is that although the Bible was written for me, the Bible is not written for me only. That is to say, God's voice in my life ought to never be cut off, severed, divorced from what God has done then, is doing now, and will do one day among his covenant people. This is part of the spiritual formation process we discussed a moment ago. Uh, The people we embrace Yet so many times we think God is simply speaking to my little self in my little life in my little apartment in my little corner of the universe. When in fact the text itself is shouting that we belong to one another, that we were made for life together, that we are inherently interdependent beings. James Cohn, the great black theologian, liberation theologian, says, God acts in history not just for me, but for a particular community. Watch this. And God's action can be for me only insofar as I choose to belong to the community of God. One's selfhood is bound up with the community to which one belongs. The future trajectory of Hunter Hambrick's life and ministry is bound up with my identification with y'all. Providence, Denver, the covenant people of God. And isn't it interesting that the branches which are thrown into the fire to be burned are first found alone? Not present with the others who are present in Christ. When was the last time you saw a tree with one branch? (laughs) No, it has a plurality of branches. If it only had one branch, it's probably a dead tree. It's been struck by lightning. When was the last time you saw a branch by itself? Not on the tree, dead, alone, on the ground. My friends, the greatest threat to both of our spiritual formation is radical individualism. The alienation of self. And as an introvert, just me plus Jesus plus my coffee, it sounds pretty good. I like that. It's easy. It's convenient. I ain't got to deal with all of y'all. But it's utterly insufficient for the whole life transformation Jesus has in mind. We need each other, but we also need God's word. Look at verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. This refers back to John chapter 13 when Jesus, in the upper room, washed the disciples' feet. And it says in the text that he loved them to the very end. Can you imagine how stabilizing the words and the, and the action of Jesus must have been for them as they advanced on in life? faced persecution, went on to spread the gospel through the known empire of Rome and beyond. Psychologists tell us we get our sense of worth from the person whose opinion we value most highly. 20th century sociologist Charles Horton Cooley coined a concept which he referred to as the looking glass self. Researchers from Lesley University explain the theory this way. Using social interaction as a type of mirror, people use the judgments they receive from others to measure their own worth, values, and behaviors. Behavior and self-esteem are dictated by a person's predictions of how they imagine they'll be perceived by others. So Cooley's theory essentially says, I am not who I think I am. I am not who who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. I'll say it one more time. I am not who I think I am. I am not even who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. This pernicious problem of perception becomes even more complex when we factor in the meteoric rise of social media. And just think about the fractured selves that we can have existing all at once, all at the same time. On any given day, we can have uh, an Instagram self, a hip, trendy, exciting individual. On Facebook, a family-loving, nacho-eating, birthday-celebrating self. On Twitter, a woke, intelligent, politically engaged self. On LinkedIn, a professional, I've got my life together, promise, I promise you I do. Hey, you want to network, by the way? Self. And I'm just speaking about myself. Or should I say, myself. Or should I say, how you perceive myself, perceiving myself, perceiving you? That's a whole lot of self. But as it turns out, perception is maybe not reality, but it's perceived reality. And if how you're perceived by others isn't true, may not even be a reality, but if it dictates how you think and behave, if these false narratives and external validations of others are what drive your sense of identity and belonging, then how real might they just be? And whoever the person or people are to whom you grant a disproportionate amount of power to discern and define your dignity, value, and worth, that person is going to be whose opinion you value most highly. It could be your spouse, it could be an ex could be a parent or older brother, younger sister, your child, your employer, a pastor, someone else from your past. But if, I think if we're honest, there's someone in our minds, eye who have right now, they were to send us the wrong text at the wrong time with the wrong words. It would immediately send us into an emotional tailspin. That's because we've granted them a disproportionate amount of power and control and authority in our lives. These are the false branches of self that we need for validation, and Jesus wants to cut them away. Well, what can we do about it? How can we live out of our true selves? How can we live as the true branches connected to the true vine producing true fruit? Well, the king of pop, Michael Jackson, is here to help, baby. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. In my own journey, my fractured sense of self, like a branch on a vine, um, has created this functional image of God. That is, I confess to believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, in control, and yet I live my life as if I am in control and as if God is distant and far off. My looking-glass view of God is that he is a slightly irked boss who's always just a little displeased with my performance. That's what Hunter Hambrick, the perfectionist, deals with daily. I think that God thinks that I am never quite good enough, never quite up to snuff. There's always a little something about me that could be tweaked, improved, or worked on. Because of this, I've started doing this nearly every morning when I wake up. I grab my little uh, 3x5 note card and begin declaring through God's word my already determined identity. It's fixed It's set. I just have to live not into it, but out of it. How freeing. I boldly speak out loud the thoughts God has already revealed about me through His Word. Straight up Joel Osteen style, baby. I'm talking, in Him I am, in Him I am loved. In him, I am accepted. In him, I am adopted. In Christ, I am free. I am forgiven. I am made new. In Jesus, I am confident. In him, I am more than enough. In him, I am valued. In him, I am totally righteous. In Jesus, I am healed. In Jesus, I am protected. In Jesus, I am chosen. In him, I am anointed. This is the word of the Lord. For all you Bereans out there, I got my scripture references, all right? This isn't just self-help stuff. You see, we have to get our functional beliefs about God up to the level of our confessional beliefs about God, what he's already said in his word. True vines, false vines. True branches, false branches. True fruit, false fruit. Look down at verses 7 through 11. It reads, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear minimal, marginal, not much, negligent fruit. No, that's not what it says. What does it say? Come on, everybody with me. It says that we would bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Now, as much as I think this text is highlighting the abundant life that Jesus has come to offer, I need to be clear here. Just because there's no immediately obvious fruit in your life, that doesn't mean you're not a true branch. In fact, that's the whole point of the pruning process. You may have been cut back, but that doesn't mean you've been cut off. I'll say that one more time. You may have been cut back, but that does not mean you have been cut off. I think that's a word for someone this morning. You may well be experiencing a season of pruning, of testing, of waiting, but your job, my job, isn't to scrutinize the external measurables of our life or even of our community here at Providence. Our job is to keep our worship directed toward Jesus despite whatever may come. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18 says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Friend, if you're sitting here worried today about whether or not you are a branch that's going to get cut off, it may be an indication that you're already connected to the true vine who is just simply preparing you for future fruit. On the other hand, if you're not worried, if you're like, I'm good, I got this, I don't need these Jesus people or this Jesus person, then you are liable to the fire of hell. You're in sin, and you need to repent and place your faith in Jesus. And I would not be a faithful minister of the gospel if I did not tell you otherwise. Because being a true branch, living as a generous, free self, isn't about being a generous, true self. It's not project self. It's about giving glory to God. D.A. Carson, in his wonderful commentary on John, writes, Christians must remember that the fruit that issues out of their obedient faith union with Christ lies at the heart of how Jesus brings glory to the Father. Those who are contemplating the claims of the gospel, who do you say that Jesus is? must reckon with the fact that failure to honor the Son is failure to honor God. Fruitlessness not only threatens fire, but robs God of the glory rightly His. When we bear fruit, we do so to the glory of God. As Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, producing fruit in you, connected to the vine, the life of the Holy Spirit flowing through you into bearing fruit, that is the hope of glory. So if you're sitting here today concerned about whether or not you're connected to the vine, concerned about how God can get the most glory out of your life, if that's your earnest desire, you may also be asking, well, Hunter, why is it that I see so little fruit? We want the fruit. We desire the fruit. We know that fruit bearing to be a good thing, but why is it that fruit is so hard to come by? Dallas Willard laments that the general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time, not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. It's a pretty dense quote. I'm going to read it one more time. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right in the condition we want to enjoy. We need structure. We need guardrails. We need a, a trellis for our vine. I think as well, many of us are scared of committing to God because we know the pain that pruning produces. In his book on spiritual formation, Henry Nouwen recounts I once saw a stonecutter remove great pieces from a huge rock on which he was working. In my imagination, I thought, that rock must be hurting terribly. Why does this man wound the rock so much? But as I looked longer, I saw the figure of a graceful dancer emerge gradually from the stone. Think of the work, the effort, the care, the commitment, the intentionality. Over a three-year process that it took Canova, the sculptor, to create that work of art. My friend, God thinks of you as that sculpture. Right now, in Christ, this is how he already sees you. What he is inviting all of us to do is to live into our already determined identity. Totally beautiful, totally beloved, totally wonderful. And when others see you living out the life that you were designed to do, what do they do? They praise the master artist who made you. They want to magnify and give glory to the designer who created this work of art. The father gets the glory. Want you... Can't I start seeing myself at least as beautifully as our Creator does? God is committed to seeing this formed in us. He's inviting us to commit to Him. Hebrews chapter 12 says, At that time, His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised, Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence in all, for our God is a consuming fire. Fire destroys, but it can also purify. In the words of our own Jason Jans, what is he pruning? He is cutting something out of you that is detrimental to what he wants you to be. God never cuts off something beneficial for you. For the believer, for those in Christ, it's the difference between judgment and discipline. It's the difference between what Judas got and what Peter got. Judgment is for the dead, lifeless branches who refuse to connect to the vine in the first place. Discipline, however, is for children who are loved and adopted and through obedience to his commandments are intended to share in the Father's joy. And isn't that what we all long to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Hebrews 12 also reminds us that it was for joy that Christ endured the cross. It was for us. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is why he went. This is why he died. This is why he suffered. So that we could be made alive, connected by the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father, to the source of life itself, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And if we abide in the true vine, if we know we are the true branches, sooner or later, don't get discouraged. You will start bearing true fruit for God. As we close this morning, I want to return to Nowen's quote we examined at the beginning of this morning's service. He says, spiritual formation means ongoing, not just once, not just Sunday morning, not just when I get around to it, a wholehearted life orientation to pursuing the heart of God in community expressed in service to the world. Next week, we begin a brand new series called Formation, Life Together as the Family of God. Over the next several weeks, I invite all of us to consider in light of the three loves, what would it look like for us as a community together bound to one another to bear more fruit for God? How can we bear more fruit in our congregation, in our community groups, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families? Said in another way, how much would Denver change? And all of us in this room made it our sole goal, our life's ambition to bear fruit for God. If we abide in the true vine, we know we're true branches. And sooner or later, we'll start bearing the fruit that God desires and we delight in. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, this morning I just sense a feeling of discouragement in this room, maybe even heaviness, and I must hear people saying, yeah, yeah, Hunter, okay, I need to bear fruit, I need to bear fruit. But if I'm honest, it's really hard right now. And it really feels like I am just feeling the scalpel of God's hand cutting away at my life. So, God, I pray that we would not grow weary of doing good, but that we would continue, we would persevere, knowing that we, corporately, plural, would produce a harvest if we don't give up. Help us, Lord. Comfort us in our afflictions. Thank you, God, that because you were cut off, we have been grafted in because you chose to take on the pain and the fire and the judgment of the cross. We can know your welcoming, accepting embrace. Help us to not focus on the fruit. Help us to abide in the vine and never be dislodged. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.